All right, so you can see my mess on the board, and it's the same thing that's on one side of your handout. So if you go to letter format comparison chart, that's the part that we'll look at first, and then we'll get to the just the outline on the back in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think I got one to Dave already, and Jody should have one. <clears throat> okay, so Colossians, a brand new book, uh, one of the go eat popcorn, you know, part of the New Testament, and it's a very rich book. It's only four chapters, and yet there's a whole lot crammed into those four short chapters. Uh, there's a lot of Christology. There's stuff about sacraments, uh, covenant theology. It's very rich in a lot of different ways. But before we get into all that, we kind of have to remember uh, the big picture of what's going on in Colossians. And first of all would be the genre. What genre is the book of Colossians? It's an epistle. It's, it's a letter, right? And so if you write a letter, you're going to have some kind of format, some kind of style. So if you are writing a letter to somebody, what are the parts that you might include in that letter? A greeting. Good. What else? A prayer. Yeah, you can include a prayer. Right, you've just got the main body with whatever you want to put in there, and that could be a prayer, that could be something else. Uh, is that it, though, normally? A closing? Yeah, you, you could put a closing in there. But there's some other important elements. If you're going to write a letter, you're writing it to somebody, right? And so it seems uh, pretty obvious, but we still got to say it. You've got to write who you're writing to. You've got to put the address, so to speak. And then at the end you got to put something else that's pretty important as well. The way we write letters, anyway, you put it at the end. Yeah, it's from me. <laughs> it's not from some random person that's not anonymous. If you're writing a letter to somebody, you want them to know it's you, normally, unless it's some kind of hate mail, but we won't get into that. Uh, you got to sign your name, right? Uh, so you just have parts to a normal letter. And we have, I remember being in elementary school, I don't remember the exact format that I was taught, but I remember being taught the parts of a letter and how to go about writing them. And then it went, you know, in one ear, out the other, and then I forgot. Until I had to start learning more about it for uh, in seminary studying books. And so in the Hellenistic world, uh, the Greek culturally dominated world of the Roman Empire uh, at the time of Paul, uh, that's culture was called Hellenism or Hellenistic uh, and so they had a regular letter format as well. So there were Hellenistic letters. There was a normal standard way to write letters that everybody used, that most famous authors, if they wrote a letter, they would have used this same structure. And so it's very similar to the structure we talked about. Basically, you have an opening, you have a body, and you have a closing. And so just the three big picture main categories. In your opening, there were some things that were very standard to include. So, of course, we like to sign off with our name, with I'm writing this from me, right? They put all that at the beginning. So from me to you, from X to Y at the top. Uh, then they'd have some kind of greetings, greetings to you, greetings to this person, greetings to whoever they're writing to. They'd normally have some kind of prayer to the gods, uh, a wish for good health typically is what it was, or wish for success. Uh, so that kind of goes together with wish and prayer. Those two merged into one, and they could be separate. But the idea was you're asking the God's blessing on whoever you're writing to. That was just standard Hellenistic letter writing procedure. 
Then you go to your body of the, of the letter, and we don't really have anything to talk about there because that could be literally anything. Uh, but then you come to the closing. And again, there's a very typical standard format for writing your letters. And so you have another good health wish or another wish of blessing. Uh, you've got a farewell. You've got greetings to anybody who might be around, like, hey, tell Tom to tell Bob hi, you know, that kind of thing. And then you sign off on the end. You've already said who it's from, but you sign off with your signature to show it's you, basically. Uh, so any questions about the Hellenistic letter format? And this will become important in a second. You may not see the connections yet, but just that there was a standard letter writing operation at this time. That's, that's what you need to see from that. So now, skip to the next column on your sheet. And we had extras, but I'm not sure where they went. Hold on one second. No? Well? Oh, okay. That's where they went. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Um, where was I? Oh, yes. Okay. So we, we talk about the Hellenistic letter format. Well, when the Jews went to write letters at this time, uh, their, their column isn't up here, but they basically took the same thing, but instead of this good health wish to false gods, what they did was, thank you, what they did was that they added a shalom, the, the, the Hebrew word for peace. So they would have some kind of peace blessing in their letter instead. So that would kind of take over the pagan elements of the Hellenistic letter. Unsurprisingly, uh, it wasn't normal for Jews to keep that part. But now we move into the Pauline column. And so Paul didn't come up with a whole new way to write a letter. He pretty much used the standard uh, letter writing of the day, more the Jewish format, which is just, if you will, a Christianized version of the uh, Hellenistic way to do it. So you've got basically the Christian version here. Paul takes it, modifies a couple things. If you go throughout all of Paul's letters, almost every letter is going to follow this same format. Now, there, sometimes there'll be this one element missing, or there'll be a couple things switched. But by and large, Paul, in every letter he writes, uses this same formula, because it was just the standard way to write a letter. And so as we approach the letter, if we understand, well, this is in this section, this is in this section, this is why he included that, then that helps us keep the bigger picture as we're walking through the book of Colossians. So if you're wondering why we're talking about letters and formatting, that's why. So we know what's going on as we walk through the book. So Paul would start with an opening, just like the Hellenistic letter. Isn't that interesting? Just a typical letter way to open. He would have X to Y, same thing. But now we have grace and peace. So again, we've crossed off the pagan elements of this, that good health wish to the gods and prayer to the gods. And now we're asking grace and peace. Now, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, what is the grace and peace in a Paul letter, Pauline letter? Yeah, it's a godly when you're asking God's grace and peace on a person. Or you're saying, we are in Christ, so grace and peace to you because I'm a brother in Christ. Something along those lines. So very biblical, very theological. Uh, and then you normally have a Thanksgiving prayer. So typically it'll be the first verse or two will be that X to Y, grace and peace to you. And then a long Thanksgiving prayer, sometimes it's shorter. I think there's one book that altogether just doesn't have it. I want to say it's Galatians, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but very standard formatting. Then we get to the body of the letter. So we're through the intro. We're through that, that opening prayer uh, of Thanksgiving. And now, typically, most books are split into two sections. So you first, you'll have a doctrinal section. 
And then the second half of the body will be what's called hortatory or commands, imperatives. So because this doctrine is true, you must then go live this way. So that's the doctrine and the hortatory. Now, don't draw too strict a line there. Uh, there's doctrine in those commands, and there are commands in those doctrines, right? So they are very closely connected. But typically, he'll be on the big picture of theology, and then he'll really move into application. So that's just the general pattern. Uh, but that doesn't mean when we're reading through the doctrine, we say, well, we don't have to do anything as a result of that. Well, that's what this whole section is about, is putting this into practice. And so we have to remember that as we walk through. And then occasionally in a body, depending on the book, he might have his travel plans in that same body section, or he might have an apostolic defense. Uh, if someone's attacking him, then he might explain why it is that he has authority in the church as an apostle. So that'd be an apostolic defense, uh, defending his ministry, if you will. All right, any questions about the opening or the body so far? Everything clear as mud? Yeah, good. All right. And lastly, so you have the closing section. Again, just very typical, just closing to closing. Uh, but just the elements he includes are a little bit different. So again, you have a peace benediction. So remember, we start with grace and peace. We end with grace and peace. So there's a, there's most endings have a peace benediction and a grace benediction. Y'all remember what benediction is, what that means? Why we say benediction at the end of a worship service? <laughs> yeah, it, that means we're done. It's the, the period at the end of the sentence, right? Uh, what does benediction, the word, mean? Do you remember that? Yeah, right. So, bene would be the good word, and then diction. Speech, so it's like a good word. It's a good speech. Uh, it's a good statement, basically, of blessing on you, God's people. That's what a benediction is. It's God's good word to you. That's why we pronounce a benediction. We come in with God's invitation. We go out with his blessing. Well, Paul writes his letters in the same way. He starts with God's grace and peace to you, and he ends with peace and grace to you. Now, sometimes the orders flip. Sometimes one will be missing. But typically, if you start and end with grace and peace, and then in there he might have greetings, just like this, to uh, greet Epaphras, greet Tychicus, greet whoever else is there who Paul knows for him. So that's just the standard letter format of Paul. And again, sometimes a book will leave one part out or add one part, but typically this is the standard format for any letter. So as you're going through 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy or whatever, you can walk through and have these sections in your mind, and then the structure of why Paul includes this here and that there will make a lot more sense to you. And you can track where you are in the book. So that's the purpose of knowing this. Uh, but now we can actually look at Colossians specifically. And so we'll just look at the structure first, and then in a little bit we'll walk through the verses and see these things. Uh, but first, if you go to the right side of your page or the right side of the board, again, we have standard opening. Uh, we have a standard Paul to you or X to Y. We start with grace and peace. There's a Thanksgiving prayer. And then you move into the body, and it's just split into that doctrine on hortatory. There's not the apostolic defense or travel plans in here. It's just doctrine then applying the doctrine. And then you go into the closing with the greetings and a grace benediction. Uh, the one oddity of Colossians, if you look at the standard format, is Colossians is just lacking a peace benediction. 
So the only way it varies from this standard thing, other than this optional thing, is that it's lacking the peace benediction. And don't read into that that that's, well, Paul didn't wish peace on the Colossians. Uh, it's just he didn't include it in that one. Because just like if you write 20 letters over the course of a year, you might change a couple things here and there, whether you mean to or not. And so it's just that sort of thing. All right, any questions about the formatting? That may seem real nerdy and nitpicky, but it helps as we go through the book. All right, flip over to the back side of your handout. We'll talk about this just for a second, and then we'll start talking about some other elements here. So the easiest way to split up the book, and this is the way we'll be tackling it as we walk through the book in the coming weeks, uh, you have your typical opening. And the opening is so short, we can read that. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So that's that opening, and it contains those elements that we've already talked about up on the board. All right, so then there's that. And then what does Paul do? Technically, it's part of the opening in the letter format, but I have it as, as its own section because it's a large section. What comes next? After that opening, what does Paul then do? Yeah, there's a grace and peace in that opening. And then right after that, what does he do? He goes straight into doctrine. Yeah, Thanksgiving, which is a yes and no, right? This is an incredibly rich Thanksgiving prayer full of rich doctrine. But before he does anything else, after greeting the saints, he goes into a full-on Thanksgiving to God. Thankful to God for you, for this, uh, for... The, the salvation we have in Christ, um, and he goes through that prayer. Then, once he's done with the thanksgiving, in chapter 1, verse 15 and on, we start diving into that more theological, uh, doctrine-heavy section, where the purpose is to explain doctrine. So there's rich doctrine in the thanksgiving, but the purpose of the thanksgiving is what? It's thanksgiving. <laughs> that is its purpose. And so then when you move into 15 and on, now the purpose is to explain things, to, to delve deeper, to give a rich theological uh, understanding to the Colossian church. And so that main body is split into doctrine, which is 115, and it runs all the way through to the end of chapter 2. Um, and then you really start the more the application. So it, it, it's telling you how to live, and then some people, you can look at some things and that section, and it is telling you what to do at the same time, but it really switches gears in chapter 3. So in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, so if everything we just talked about is true, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. So it starts really focusing more on the command side, the applying those truths that Paul has already talked about. And so that hortatory section runs from chapter 3 through verse 6 of chapter 4. And then you have the closing from verses 7 in chapter 4 through the end. And so that would include the greetings and the grace benediction. And there are a lot of greetings, a lot of names used in chapter 4. All right, so that's the big picture outline. That's where we're headed. Uh, Keith, do you need a handout? And so what's on the board is also on that handout on one side, and then the other side is just the uh, outline. All right, any questions on anything we've talked about so far? Outline, structure, 
uh, big picture. All right, well, there's some other elements we need to talk about before we actually dig into. My goal is just to get through verses 1 and 2 today, so a high, high goal, right? Uh, lots of verses to cover. Uh, <laughs> well, that's what, when you hit a Pauline epistle, you've got to slow down. It's not a narrative like 1 Samuel, because we're, we're covering two full chapters in, in the sermon today, but uh, we can't do that in Colossians, not, not easily anyway. All right, let's read verses 1 again. Someone would volunteer to read that, please. Of chapter 1, that is. All right, so who was our author for the book? Paul and Timothy. And so when we go through our epistles in the New Testament, we always just say, oh, it's Paul. But sometimes other people are listed, Sylvanus, uh, Timothy, some, I think one is all three of them. Uh, so we always attribute it straight to Paul. But yeah, Timothy helped in some way with writing this letter. Uh, now, Paul is actually debated by some scholars here. Uh, but I'll just say that those scholars typically are very liberal in their views. Uh, there's a lot of arguments they use that go all over the place, but their favorite argument basically is summed up by well, the style and the theology seem, uh, the style seems slightly different from normal Paul, and the theology seems well too thought out to be written when it was written. So that's their two main basic arguments. Uh, but what are some ways that you all, off the top of your heads, right now, could account for those things? Could answer those uh, objections? Yeah, and there's no reason to say that, well, this is richer theology, so it has to come later. That's not true. <laughs> That's not how that works. Uh, what about the different style? There's an answer in verse 1. And Timothy. So the different style could just be Timothy was helping with this, or Timothy wrote part of it. We don't know how that was divvied up or how that looked, but... Timothy's input may make it sound slightly different from Paul. But also there's just, you're writing at a different time than some other things. You're writing to a different group of people. So that can make you sound different. When you write a letter, does this letter always sound like that letter? No, they're always going to be slightly different. And so there's not really, truthfully, any good arguments against Pauline authorship here. Uh, those are the people who say Paul only actually wrote I can't remember how many, three or four of all the letters that we attribute to Paul. They take a very small section. Maybe it's five. I can't remember. They say, these are legitimate. All the others aren't really Paul. It's just someone. Uh, they might say, Timothy wrote this, but he wanted people to take him seriously. So he signed Paul, too. Uh, that kind of thing. Which there's just no reason to hold those views. Uh, it's very clear. Paul, Timothy, and there's no good argument against it. Uh, i make sure I didn't forget anything there. Any questions on that? Well, in my mind, dictating them and writing them would be the same in the end. But, but yeah, I think in some of them he would have used an amanuensis, uh, so they're just writing what he said. Um, but he would have seen it. I mean, it was still, this is Paul's words. Uh, but I think just as often he wrote it himself. When he specifically says, see with what, with what large letters I write my name, I think that someone else is writing the body form and he's signing it at the end as he's dictated to him. 
There's no problem with that in terms of inspiration of Scripture or anything. Uh, so bottom line, we don't know, but it seems to be the case in some letters. But others, he seems to be a, the actual one writing. So I think, I think both are, are true, depending on the letter. Okay. I was thinking there was something else, but maybe not. All right, so that's author. Uh, audience, someone could read verse 2. All right. Thank you. And so who is he writing to? The church where? Yeah. Okay. And now I remember what the other thing I wanted to say about authorship was. So this is the church at Colossae. Paul has never been to Colossae. He had not been there. He did not know these people. Uh, it was Epaphras who went there, basically planted the church and then brought news to Paul. It's like, hey, there's a new church here. And so Paul then writes to this. So Another thing that could make Paul sound slightly different is he's writing to an audience he doesn't know. And so he's giving a big theological picture. He's addressing possible issues that may be at, at this specific church. Um, so, again, that's another difference in style. But it's very clear that it's to the church in Colossae. So there's not really too much argument or anything there, ironically. People only want to know if we can disregard the scripture. They don't care who it's to normally uh, when they start arguing about this stuff. But anyway, uh, but the city of Colossae, it was at one time a, a major city. It was at one time very important. Uh, they produced this purple dye called, I want to look at the name so I try to say it right, Colossius. Uh, and they, they put out a lot of wool. They're known for textiles and dyeing. So it was a pretty famous city at one point. But by this point, it had really started to fade into obscurity. It had been surpassed by other surrounding towns that had really taken up more of the economic load and kind of left them behind, so to speak. So Colossae was fading out. And one thing historically is, well, am I going to get ahead of myself here? We'll come back to that other thought in a minute. Uh, but this is the church in Colossus. So it was once a powerful city, now not so much. So you have to wonder what that is doing to affect the actual church there. Uh, and they were probably that much more ready for the gospel of hope when they may see their economic futures going downhill. Uh, so anyway, ways that the gospel may have been opened in the first place. All right, do you know where this letter was written from? Where did Paul write this letter? Also known as the provenance. That is the consensus, yes. He was definitely in chains. We know for certain he was in jail, and he wrote this together with Philemon, Philippians, and Ephesians, I believe. Yeah, Philemon's, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, and Colossians were all written about the same time from prison. Some argue he was on the way to Rome under house arrest, and then he wrote it along the way. That's possible, but it's much more likely he was in Rome because of the date. And that's the next thing to talk about is the date. Somewhere between 60 and 62 is what we're looking at with this. Some, like N.T. Wright, tried to argue earlier, but I don't think those are very good arguments, just to be quite honest. Uh, but it couldn't have been really any later than 61 or 62, because there's a big earthquake that hit Colossus, Colossae, uh, either at the end of 61 or early into 62, and it pretty much leveled the city. And after that, there is nobody who writes to Colossae. There's no one who mentions Colossae after that point. And so we're pretty sure the city was not rebuilt. People just left it and abandoned it at that point. Uh, 
So the, the church there, the people would be long-lived in terms of being believers, but the actual city was not. Uh, so when it was fading out, it was fading out and then gone. Uh, but that also helps us nail down that date of that 60 to 62 kind of range. No, no, there might be another city on its spot. That, I can't remember the, the archaeology there. Uh, but at this point, they've never dug it up and tried to excavate the city. Um, it's just sitting buried as far as I, at least when the commentaries that I looked at were written, that was the case. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to dig down some to try to find the remains. And I don't know what you would find, just a bunch of rock on its side. Uh, when it's destroyed by an earthquake, there's not much worth digging up anyway. Uh, okay, so that's date. That's where Paul wrote from. And then go to chapter 4, and we'll read verses 7 through 9. And this will give us who delivered the letter. Because if Paul is in prison, no matter where he is, whether that's Rome or on the way to Rome, Paul can't be the one delivering the letter by hand, right? Someone else has to do that. So someone can read chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. All right. Thank you. So, so Onesimus and Tychicus, or Tychicus, however you want to say his name, they were with Paul when Paul's writing the letter. And now Paul, once he has it written, and along with these other letters, is going to send them out. And so specifically, Tychicus and Onesimus are coming to Colossae with this letter. Now, why is one of those names familiar to you or should be familiar to you? Who's Onesimus? Right. Right. So, so that letter Philemon is coming with them as well. So Onesimus, Tychicus, they're coming with the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon to Colossae. So these are letter carriers. And here is where we see Onesimus is part of the church at Colossae, meaning Philemon is also part of the church at Colossae. Uh, so some familiar names there. But those are the carriers, the couriers of the letter. All right, any questions about any of that? If not, we'll get into more of the purpose and themes. All right. So, uh, purpose. So, first of all, we've already noted that Paul hasn't met this church. So, if you haven't met a church and you're an apostle and you're kind of the apostle to the Gentiles, at least in this area, uh, what might you want to do? Don't overthink it. <laughs> yeah, you might want to go see him. And if you're in chains and you can't, well, what's another way you could talk to him? Write him a letter. Uh, introduce yourself. Talk theology. Uh, give them instruction because they need instruction. It's a new church with new believers. Uh, believers from all different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, that need direction in what to believe. Uh, so this was a way for Paul to write. So that if you want to look at the big picture purpose, it's Paul wants to introduce himself and then give some good theology to a new church. I mean, that's, that's really the big picture of why he's writing it. Now, there is another element to why he's writing it, and it, 
we got to be careful how we talk about it because I think it's one that's way overplayed with a lot of these letters, and that is the, the, the area of heresy. And so some people go overboard of trying to identify the specific heresy with just about every letter Paul writes. Well, he had to have been writing to this group because of this verse and this verse and this verse. And while that can be helpful, it can get you distracted from the bigger picture real quickly. Uh, because, yeah, there may be specific heresies that Paul was writing to address, but what do we know from the church today, from our experiences in this world, about heresy? Again, don't overthink it. It's everywhere, in every form. And so, unless there was one false teaching specifically in the church, or this church is specifically going off the rails in one specific way, like, say, the Galatians, and giving up justification by faith alone, uh, unless there's that one issue, then it could be anything. And so, Paul, instead of maybe getting at one specific thing, he seems to be addressing uh, multiple different possible issues. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the church was crumbling under the pressure. It just means that there's a lot of dangers out there. Here's some common ones right now. Um, but I don't think we need to spend hours trying to figure out what the specific heresy was. I, I think that's missing the larger point of what's going on. And so as you, if you go and read through commentaries, they'll, they'll debate this for many, many, many pages, what this heresy was. Uh, I just think they go too far in trying to address it. Uh, so was Paul potentially trying to avoid or address one heresy, it's possible. But we don't know for certain because it's not explicitly said. So we shouldn't read into it too far. That makes sense, my final point there. All right, let's move on from heresy. That's not much fun. All right, themes and main message. Uh, Y'all have read Colossians many times in your life, I'm sure. If you had to sum up Colossians, how would you describe it? One word, a sentence, whatever you've got. Christ in you, yeah. That sums it up pretty well, actually. <laughs> yeah. Any others? How well do you remember Colossians? Oh, yeah. It, it, that's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and it kind of goes with what Nick said, too. It's that Christology. Uh, the study of Christ, the, the theology of Christ and who he is. And that is, if you're looking at the big picture of Colossians, that's it. It's, it's Christ and who he is. The preeminence of Christ. Uh, some commentator, I can't remember who it was, maybe the ESV commentary series says, I don't know, a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament, which I'm sure you all have read many times. Uh, but their section on this book says, its message remains simple and clear, Christ is better. So another theme that runs through is the idea of wisdom and the mystery of the gospel, and those things go very closely together. So the idea is there's true wisdom in Christ, but part of what Paul is addressing is that there's these false forms of wisdom all around. And that goes back to the heresy idea. There's philosophy, there's false religion, there's uh, Judaizers, there's all these views coming into the church. But at the end of the day, the big picture message with all of these opposing viewpoints is that Christ is better than all of these things. Christ is true wisdom. These other things are false. They are empty or they are misunderstandings of the truth, uh, distortions even of the truth. And so at the end of the day, the primary theme is that Christ is better. Christ is more. Uh, Christ is sufficient, you could say. 
So that's the big picture theme. There are other themes as well, uh, but they all kind of feed into that or flow out of that one major one. So another one is, is victory. God's victory over, not over the, the human physical world, but over the demonic realm. That's a big emphasis as we walk through. Uh, that's part of the preeminence of Christ is that he has had victory over all these other things. Uh, I already mentioned wisdom and mystery. Um, let's look at a few examples of all these things. Uh, go to chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. And if someone could read that, please. So it keeps going, but it's that that Christology theme is really forefront there, that preeminence, that um, Christ is the almighty creator and ruler. So that's stated there. Uh, Next, go to 2.15. And this is looking at that theme of God's victory. And I'll read that. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, the verses we read a moment ago mentioned that God's the one who puts all rulers and authorities on earth in place, right? Well, this is most likely referring to spiritual uh, authorities and demons, and Christ has put them in their place as well. Total victory over them. So you see that victory there also. I go back to chapter 1. We'll look at a couple of the other themes. One I did not think to mention, or missed in my notes uh reconciliation that's a major theme in colossians as well and of course anytime you talk about the gospel and salvation well reconciliation has to take place we have to be reconciled to god god has to be reconciled to us and so if you're talking about the gospel in depth theologically reconciliation is a major theme that is necessarily going to appear and if you look at verses 19 and 20 this is these are some verses that address it For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that is, in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So big picture, why did Christ do what he did? To reconcile or reconciliation. All right. Uh, Let's look at a verse on wisdom. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 1, someone could read that, please. Thank you. So there you see it's uh, part of the purpose of preaching Christ to the Colossians is that they would be filled with true wisdom. That is wisdom that's only found in knowing, submitting to, and loving Christ and seeking out his will in the word. Uh, So that's how wisdom runs through. And then closely connected to that is the theme of mystery. And what is mystery in Scripture? Mystery to be revealed, is that what you said, Hazel? Not revealed. Okay, good. Yeah, something that wasn't revealed, say, maybe in the Old Testament or wasn't revealed fully. But then now what has happened? It's been revealed. (laughs) 
So, for instance, part of the mystery in Romans is that the gospel, so to speak, was, oh, it's just for the Jews in the Old Testament, even though they were supposed to be a light to the nations, right? But then you get to the book of Romans, and Paul's talking about that. He moves it forward, and now what is another mystery that has been revealed? Yeah, the Gentiles are supposed to be part of the church. The gospel message is for all who believe, all who come to Christ. And so that is a mystery that once was not fully revealed, at least. It should have been. It was revealed in part. But now it's fully revealed. Well, the gospel, as it comes to the Gentiles, the Gentiles are clueless. They know something that there should be a God, that they're supposed to submit to him, but they don't have any further understanding than that. Well, now the gospel has come and the mystery is revealed that Christ is the Savior, that he is the Lord. And so that's that mystery being revealed. Uh, So I'll read chapter 1, verses 24 through 27 to kind of see this theme. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Really, it's the the last part of that that's picking up on that theme, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed. Um, so again, it wasn't known, but now it is. So what is the new light? What is the new wisdom that's being revealed in this book? Well, it's essentially Christ. And that's the underlying big picture. All right, any questions about themes or any themes or additions to the message that y'all have or that y'all have thought of as we've looked through these things? All right. Well, we'll pick up on and see more smaller themes as we go along. Uh, but those are the biggest themes that run throughout. Uh, so now let's just kind of dig into those first two verses a little bit, and then we'll finish with those. So let's reread verses one through two if someone would be willing to read that again. All right. Thank you, Jane. All right. So verse one. And here we see some of the elements of the letters and just generally a a Pauline epistle. Uh, We see who's writing it, first of all. Yeah, Paul's listed first. And then Paul gives a little description of himself there. Now, some will go too far and say, oh, this is a huge apostolic defense defending his authority. I don't think that's necessarily the case. He's just saying who he is. He's Paul, uh, but he does have immense authority. Why? Yeah, because he's an apostle, and he didn't make himself an apostle. The other apostles didn't decide they needed a new guy. Uh, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, so he is not self-appointed. He was set apart by God for this task, and therefore he has the authority to speak to the church. He has the authority, the gift, and the guidance of the Spirit to write a letter that will become Scripture. Uh, so he has that power to give this letter. 
Uh, but it's not this necessarily top-down, I'm better than you authority kind of thing. It's that I am qualified, I'm the apostle, and I want to feed you. That's also part of it. It's a very pastoral statement as well. Uh, so he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And if you're an apostle, if you're an elder, what are you for the flock? A leader, a shepherd. You're, you're to care for the flock. And so that's part of what Paul is doing here. And that's part of what God's will is for him in that position of authority, is to serve and feed the flock with God's word. And then the end of verse 1, you see the other author, or at least the assistant, or however Timothy functioned in this letter, Timothy, our brother. Why does he call him brother? Right. And he could have said, my buddy. (laughs) He could have used a lot of different words, or he could have said, uh, our ruling and teaching elder, Timothy. But no, he calls him a brother. And if he's Paul's brother, then who else's brother is he? The Colossians. And so the Colossians may not know a ton about Timothy at this point, but they know that he's with an apostle and he's a brother. I mean, he's a brother to Paul, he's a brother to them. And so Paul also, or uh, Timothy, excuse me, is also acting like a shepherd here in leading and teaching the flock. Okay, any questions about verse 1? All right, let's look at verse 2. So we've seen the writers. Who is the audience? Why two descriptions? To the saints at Colossae, that would be plenty. To the brothers at Colossae, that would be plenty. Are they different? Are saints in this instance different from brothers? Is that why he needs both? I see a no from Dave, see a no from Nick, no from Gaylene. All right, so the consensus seems to be no. Why include both then? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's an emphatic statement. Uh, It's reemphasizing something. Uh, Your saints, meaning, notice Paul didn't say, y'all are sinners who have kind of cleaned yourselves up a little bit. Yeah, y'all are awful people, but you're doing a little better. Now, he said, you are saints. What is a saint? Holy and set apart. Not in the Catholic sense where, oh, you've reached a level of holiness where now you're saint. These were new believers. We know none of them were there. Um, Most of them would be new believers, and yet Paul calls them saints. So right off the bat that they are set apart and holy because as soon as you are justified by Christ and come to faith, you are holy. Your old identity is gone, and that's why if you followed any of that mess in the PCA with identifying yourself this way or that way, can you be same-sex attracted and still be a pastor or a Christian? All that debate, well, the reason it's so important is because of identity. Because we're not our sin, we're not sinners, we are saints. We still sin, though, but that is not our identity anymore. And that's why it's so important how we identify ourselves And I know that phrase, people mean well when they say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I know what they're trying to say, but I I prefer not to use that for the simple fact that we are saints saved by grace. We were once sinners and still sin, but we are being sanctified. Uh, I'm getting on my soapbox about that. All right, I'll stop. Uh, But yeah, we, we see this double statement. You are saints and you are faithful brothers. In what way are they faithful?
I think that's the way to take it. Yeah. Uh, whether you're talking about faithful to the religion, faithful to Christ, uh, faithful in their profession, even. I think all those things are true, that they are saints and they are faithful brothers. They're, you could say they're reliable brothers. I think it could carry that implication as well. Um, that you are a true church because you're all saints and you're all faithful brothers in Christ. I think that's very intentional, but Paul and Timothy double that statement. Uh, adds emphasis, it adds depth, it, it, it has theology in and of itself. Um, Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, as we go on, we're going to talk about that a lot in Colossians, that unity that we have, because we're part of one body in who? In Christ. And even at the end of, uh, right after faithful brothers, faithful brothers in Christ. That's how you're faithful brothers, is because you're all connected to the same head. Or actually, in some other letters, it's we are the body, Christ is the head. If I remember right in this letter, it's we are all the body. And so, you know, the, the uh, imagery slightly changes, but it's still basically the same idea. That we are all together, united in Christ. That's what makes us brothers. That's what makes us saints. And if you are not in Christ, you have no part in any of this. You must be in Christ in order to be a saint. And so just how interconnected all those things are. So really, in a way, there's three descriptions there. Saints, faithful brothers who are in Christ. Um, and all to this specific church in Colossae, and yet it is true for all who are in Christ anywhere at any point. Right. Right. Yeah, and that that gets back to the that visible and invisible church. Um, not every church is 100% saved in terms of everybody in there being truly saved. Uh, they may all profess it, they may all be there, but some may not be believing it. Yeah, right. Uh, so for these things to be true in the letter, or for at least you to be able to apply them and live by them, you've got to truly be trusting in Christ. All right, and then how does verse 2 end? Remember, it's on our Pauline and Colossians letter format list. Yeah. And so we're in Christ, and because we're in Christ, it is God our Father. Again, Gentiles who are unsaved call on God as Father. No, they can call on him as judge. But that's about it. But because we're in Christ, we receive grace and peace from God, our Father. Notice it's not even the Father. It's very specifically our Father. Because us as saints, that is our right, is to call upon our Father uh, through Christ. So we see that promise there. So how are grace and peace different? What is grace first? Yes, that's a good way to put it. Something you didn't deserve and you didn't earn, and yet God richly lavished it on you anyway through Christ. 
that's that's good. Um, and then peace. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to that reconciliation theme. So that's something that Paul and Timothy are going to expand upon further on in the letter. Is that because we've been reconciled, we are no longer at enmity. We are no longer at war with God. Um, Because sometimes we only address one side of that relationship. We needed to be reconciled to God and God needed to be reconciled to us. There is no one-sided thing there. It's, It's both parties have to be reconciled to one another and... This simple grace and peace uh, greeting is a reminder of that, that we are at peace with God. We're not at war. We're not his enemies. We are made at peace, and now we are his children. So just all the elements of the gospel in these short two verses. All right, any other thoughts or questions you all have? If not, we'll let out a few minutes early, but any, any thoughts or comments? All right, well, y'all are a quiet bunch this morning, but that's okay. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you have set us at peace with God, that you have given us the ability to call on the Father as our Father, that we can come to worship and that we can even enter into your special presence, that we can uh, worship together as a body of believers in Christ that we can go to God as our Father, as our Lord, as our Savior, um, and that we can worship without fear. Uh, there's a sense of fear in terms of, of before your holiness, but it's not a, a fear in, in terms of judgment. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have given us new identities, that we are saints uh, because of your grace and because of the peace of Christ. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you and we worship you for that. Help us to give you praise this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.